Hello, and welcome to this interview. I'm Megan Gibson, co-host of the Trauma Super Conference. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Ronald Siegel, an assistant professor of psychology part-time at Harvard Medical School. He's the author of several books, including The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary, Finding Happiness Right Where You Are, and The Mindfulness Solution, Everyday Practices for Everyday Problems. He's a longtime student of mindfulness meditation, teaches internationally about the application of mindfulness practice in psychotherapy and other fields, and maintains a private clinical practice in Lincoln, Massachusetts. Dr. Ronald Siegel, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for inviting me. So one of my favorite things about talking with you is how well you explain the process of evolution and how our brains have evolved to predispose us to things like trauma. So I'd love if you would start there. Yeah, you know, there there are so many aspects of our brains that were adaptive for survival and adaptive for reproducing and passing our genes on to our kids and even for taking care of our kids, which predispose us toward a lot of psychological suffering, including toward trauma. And uh, if, if it's not too complicated of a map, there are actually four, I think, um, predispositions of our brain that get us into trouble vis-a-vis -vis trauma. Uh, the first one is very, very basic. It's, it's something that we share with all other animals. We even share it with bacteria. It's the tendency to recoil from that which might be dangerous or painful right? And uh, and to move toward that which is pleasurable. And we see this obviously throughout the animal kingdom where um, where all organisms, uh, you know, if, if, if something is, is sharp or hot or in some way painful, they, they will withdraw from it. Um, and uh, the way this shows up for us is, while this makes perfect sense evolutionarily in order to keep our bodies intact and and uh, and and be be healthy in the world when it comes to emotional experience it's not always so wise and what happens is our minds automatically when we have a painful emotional experience recoil from it and withdraw from it. And we do that to such a degree, and we have this interesting capacity to be able to actually block it out of awareness. And you could see also how this would be very adaptive in terms of our, our evolutionary history. Let's say, you know, you had uh, um, experienced something uh, uh, really horrible with a lion, in, you know, in the past out there on the African savanna, and you're in a new situation that requires you to think quickly, you don't want to be thinking about the lion. You want to be thinking about what you have to do now. The same way, for example, a first responder now, you know, they're not thinking about all the scary things and the hurt things that have happened. They're focusing on how do I save this person, right? Um, but in the process of pushing it out of awareness, we create a situation in which a lot of our thoughts and feelings are pushed out of awareness, and it's particularly the painful one. So that's that's the first mechanism, and, and and we'll talk about the you know the way in which by splitting off experiences that are painful, we actually predispose us toward all sorts of <clears throat> post traumatic difficulties because these these memories they don't just disappear, as one of my patients put it so eloquently. When we bury feelings, we bury them alive, and mm. they come back, and they want to re-express themselves. And then we're always stressed out trying to maintain this, trying to keep them out of awareness. So that so that's one mechanism. Another thing that we evolved for is to be able to think, right? Now, you know, again, going back to the African savanna, 
<clears throat> we weren't very fast, we weren't very tall, we weren't very strong compared to the other animals. If we came face to face with a lion, our recourses were kind of limited. What we're gonna like rid our teeth and show our claws, but that wouldn't work very well, right? Um, so what could we do? Well, we had a few resources. One of them was we were, we were social creatures, so we could cooperate with others, and that's super helpful. We had a prehensile thumb so that we could grab things and uh, make and use tools. That was super helpful. We had this fight or flight system, right, that allowed us to activate ourselves quickly. But the real ace in the hole we had, I mean, the, our, our, our real strength that set us aside from the other animals was this ability to think. But our thinking process is not just some neutral computer. It's subject to what cognitive scientists call the negativity bias or what my friend uh, Rick Hansen uh, uses the metaphor. He says, we're like, um, our brains are like Velcro for bad experiences and Teflon for good ones. Bad experiences happen and they stick. Good ones happen, they slide right off the pan. And uh, there's a good reason for this because when we're out there on the savanna, we could have made one of two types of errors and they actually correspond to type one and type two errors in modern scientific research. A type one error is a false positive, Type two is a false negative. To to illustrate this, a type one error would be to be looking at a like a um, beige or yellow shape behind some bushes and think, "Oh my God, it's a lion!" When it's really just a beige rock. And a type two error would be to look at the same thing and say, "Ah, it's probably just a beige rock." When it's really a lion. And you could imagine we could make countless of these type one errors and still live to tell and survive and pass on our DNA to our kids. But one type two error, that's the end of our DNA line. So maybe in ancient times, there were these happy hominids holding hands and telling stories about luscious pieces of fruit and wonderful sexual encounters and, you know, and gorgeous sunny days, but they weren't our ancestors. Why? Because statistically, they died before they got to reproduce. <laughs> Our ancestors were the ones walking around saying, oh, my God, that could be a lion, not another poisonous snake. Oh, one of those plants with the, with the thorns. That was horrible last time. Right. Our ancestors, because it was good for survival, are the ones who have these brains in which bad things stick. So when we've had a traumatic experience, it ha even though there's this tendency to push it out of awareness, it also sticks around because this negativity bias was so helpful for survival. So third thing that we evolved for, we evolved to believe that the world is stable and that things are relatively permanent. Now, why was that useful? Well, you know, if you were wandering around the savannah and you discovered, hey, there's this fruit tree over there at the base of that mountain. Well, remembering that and thinking of that as stable and expecting the fruit tree to be there in the future was going to be helpful because you'd be able to find the, the fruit tree or even just getting the idea that, oh, you know, that person over there is you know, cooperative and okay, that person over there, watch out for them, right? To, to start to, we, we look for patterns and, and pattern recognition involves imagining things will be stable. Well, that's very useful in a lot of situations, but it becomes very problematic when dealing with emotions, because when we start to get really sad or really scared or even really angry, we imagine that this is the state forever. 
right? We we imagine we become afraid of our fear, be afraid of our sadness, afraid of our anger because we think it's going to stick. We don't we don't realize the reality, which is, gosh, consciousness is mercurial. It's always changing, right? Different things are happening each moment. And, um, you know, one of my fun exercises, what was your worry three worries ago? <laughs> and, you know, it, it's hard to remember it. But in the moment, it felt like this is going to be it forever, right? And gosh, when I get sad, I get afraid of sadness because like, oh, no, I'm going to always be upset. I'm not always going to be upset. But so that dovetails with this tendency to push the painful things out of awareness. We push them out of awareness because we fear that they're going to be permanent. And the fourth thing, the fourth propensity, and it's sort of arbitrary picking four, but these are, I think these are the greatest hits. The fourth one is um, our preoccupation with ourselves and with what other people think about us. Um, uh, you know, out there on the African savanna, there was a lot of concern with being dominant right and you know you see this pattern where there's often a dominant male surrounded by literally a harem of reproductively promising females and then over in the next field uh there would be a group of uh often a little bit younger males doing the species specific equivalent of playing basketball you know trying to develop the skills to become dominant now why does dominance matter so much well, the dominant ones and the uh, the dominant males and the females that had kids with dominant males, they had better luck at passing on their DNA because they had access to more resources and were able to protect the kids and 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 like that. So there's a lot of concern for this. And that all sounds very primitive. And yes, we see it play out in human affairs in which world leaders historically, male world leaders have had literal harems and that kind of thing and we see people with their trophy wives there i mean there there are current examples mm -hmm. but the but the way this plays out much more broadly for all of us um and isn't just a guy thing is fluctuating self-esteem we are very concerned with how we're doing how do i feel about myself uh you know right now um am i doing a good job presenting these ideas you know is is megan smiling and thinking uh, it, no pressure you know but thinking, always i'm always smiling and thinking <laughs> which is lovely about you. which is actually lovely and very encouraging but but the, but the you know the the sort of looking for feedback am i doing okay or just you know going through the world should i have said that oh do i look okay um am i being a nice person am i a good enough friend i mean there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ways in which we're always evaluating ourselves and judging ourselves and thinking we're either good or bad and um so this kind of self-esteem preoccupation and preoccupation with self-judgment plays a huge role in our suffering and the way it relates to trauma is almost everybody who's been through trauma feels some shame around it either they feel shame around um the you know the post-traumatic symptoms like i don't know you know i freeze in these situations i go blank i don't feel like i'm able to connect to people uh you know i feel dead inside uh, just naming some of the possibilities right um so people feel ashamed about having post-traumatic symptoms or often people are ashamed of having been through the trauma that you know certainly people who have been uh you know sexually mistreated and the traumas in that area almost always feel like something's wrong with them because this happened people who are suffering from what we now call moral injury like the you know the the people in combat who 
under the circumstances do something and and in retrospect it's like oh my god you know an innocent person was was killed or injured and you know, they feel terrible about themselves so that this self-judgment including harsh self-judgment gets much much worse when people have been um uh through trauma and yet the self-judgment is part of this whole self-esteem regulation which really comes from comparing ourselves to others and thinking am i okay am i good enough this material in an excerpt from a longer podcast or video follow link in description to learn more